Fireflies Unite with Kia, your weekly podcast from the perspective of individuals thriving with a mental illness. We are normalizing the conversation about mental health within communities of color to foster mental wellness and empowerment. Welcome. This is like the first official Instagram Live Fireflies Unite podcast with me, Kia, where our mission is to bring light into darkness, just like the fireflies, by simply sharing the stories of people of color who thrive with a mental illness. So I'm super excited to record this episode, even though I'm kind of nervous about being on live. It's so different. I prefer to just have the mic on and not the camera. So I wanted to provide a different perspective, I think, just because I don't, my brother, we are very close, but sometimes he's not as open about like his emotions or being vulnerable. And I know for black men in America, it can be a lot because we live in a country that don't appreciate black people um, and really treat us like we're animals or we don't, or we are, we shouldn't exist. So I wanted to get my brother to talk on the podcast to talk about, one, tell a little little bit about yourself. I'm Sabrina Murray. A little bit about myself. Uh, Let's see, I come from a big family of 13 siblings. That's eight brothers and five sisters. All Uh, of them are not my moms, just so y'all know. Most of them. I have a big history of wrestling where I was competing to be one of the state places my senior year. I went down my junior year one round before placing in the state and then tore my ACL, which caused me to start uh, depending back on music. So I started leading towards music. And I mean, it was just a lot. I'm, I have a history of like going through a lot of stuff at home that I have to overcome being the oldest brother now in the house, the older child of the house, considering my brother and sister left. But yeah, that's basically a little, little bit about me. I was the little bitch you said ask for. Yeah, so how old are you? I'm 18 now. Okay, did you graduate high school? Yes, I did. Okay. This year. <laughs> okay, so one of the things I wanted to get into, what are some of the things that you felt like you've been taught as a young man that made you feel like worked actually against you? Like how some, like your dad will say something like man up or like men shouldn't cry, like those things that kind of try to make you feel like showing emotion means like you're less than a man. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, my father definitely told me about that. But although at the time I didn't understand, like, he's like, come on now, help me with my emotions that I'm going through. But when I started going through bigger things, like starting to see domestic violence going on, when he started telling me, man up, I couldn't be the child to just be sitting there crying and wimping around. I had my little brothers. That's that's what they were doing. If I'm doing that, I basically felt like I was in their boots and I wanted to be the father figure for them. So it was times I did have to man up and I'll cry behind closed doors. You know, I can't let them see me do that because they needed someone they could go to or felt like they had a man to go to when my father wasn't that man, which like so sometimes that advice helped. But or a child know that that advice is, is a little tough to uh, to bear, understand. You won't always understand it until you grow up and actually have to be in a predicament where you got to really, like, put in an effect, rather, well, basically. You felt like, do you feel, do you feel like you had to grow up faster than some of your peers? Of course, yes. Why? why? 
uh, let's see, uh, I started seeing freshman year, my high school, I started getting the answer of no from my mother a lot. She had a lot of uh, kids she had to uh, care for, so I understood that. Then I started seeing kids like in, in the lunchroom, you know, eating, eating very good, however, like, and I'm just sitting there like, wow, like they got all these cookies. How can I get that many cookies? Like I never had that before. And then I'm just like going home. Then I know it's nothing in the fridge. So I know like I got to go ask somebody back. to. That's when I started learning like, okay, so we got to become independent and start finding a way for ourselves before we can even find a way for our siblings or our loved ones. Because our mother's working every day you're leaving out. Like before you even go to school, she's working. And after you go to school, she's still at work. So it started hitting me where like, all right, we can't be this little kid no more. It's time for us to grow up. So so when I, when I, once I started coming under that mentality, I knew I had to start making some changes and because I knew it wasn't just about me no more. I had all these brothers growing up and they were coming home to the same predicament I was, but they didn't have really nothing to really do but sit on the couch and just cope with everything. But I couldn't I couldn't just be there doing that because they, you know, I wouldn't we wouldn't be able to I wouldn't. Well, they wouldn't have anything to, to look forward to if I was the one sitting there on the couch, too, with them with a black TV and whatever. So, you know. I what do you just, mean with a black TV? Uh, we didn't have TV. Sometimes the electric was coming. We was coming home to no electric sometimes. And like, even you being my sister, you didn't know all of this. So like, we wouldn't tell you this over the phone. It's not something that we were proud to talk about, but yeah, basically coming home to tough, uh, tough environment. Yeah, and I think that's something, granted there are since I've been gone from my house since I was, so I left at 17 and then I think I, I went back like one time for six months and then that was for me to transition um, to graduate school. But that was just something that I didn't want to go back to. I knew that there were things that were going on in the house as far as like my mom being abused and things like that. But that really kind of pushed me. And that's like really where my drive comes from. So and also feeling the pressure as like being the oldest of seven, I always was like, I have to do something more. And I felt bad that I haven't been in a financial situation to do more for my family. But for me, I had to realize that the best way that I can help is to just be an example. I can show them that, yeah, this is these are the circumstances or the cards that we have been dealt but you can still change the trajectory of your life. So that was my way of giving back, but also like showing them that there is hope, even though there were moments when I didn't really feel like there was really any hope. So he talked about, so you talked about like sometimes coming home with there not being any electricity or sometimes maybe food. I will vouch and say maybe sometimes there was food, but it wasn't food that you wanted. So, yeah, so maybe there was some times where there was absolutely no food in the house in the, or enough food. Um, and then other times where there was food, but it, maybe it was peanut butter and jelly or egg and cheese sandwich, and maybe they didn't want that. But it still is very hard be, for kids to rationalize something like that, to be, to, for any kid to come home and it's just hard to think about it, for any kid to come home and think like, wow, there's nothing in the house for me to eat. Or you come home and you discover, oh, the lights are off. And now here's someone who now he's 18, but like at 16, feeling like, wow, what do I, what can I do to help my mom? And feeling like I have to carry the weight. And is that how you felt 
sometimes or still do? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the weed was more my shoulder than it was even on her because she didn't have nobody. I was her go-to person. Like, she'll look at my father, but he'll come up with an excuse. Oh, I can't. I got this to handle. So, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of weight more on me that I had to take back with the initiative to go out and do. So, yeah, and, you know, and, and I think that shows the strength. And that is someone being very strong, but it's also very taxing to feel like you can't fully enjoy your childhood because you have to become an adult because of circumstances that you were dealt. Um, and that's not to say that my mom did a bad job with us because I truly believe that my mom has done the best that she absolutely can do with us. Um, I have a master's degree from Georgetown and a bachelor's from Howard. My mom has always enforced education and has always told and encouraged me. She's always supported my dream. She's never been like one of those parents was like, well, you need to go to college and major in something that you could find a job in. Even my mom's passion was nursing and she never got a chance to fully live out that dream um, when she only got up to a certain point in her uh, nursing program. And so, like, she's never been like, oh, well, you need to go into the medical field because that's what I want to do. No, my mom has always said, whatever it is that you want to do, whatever your dream is, I'm going to support you and I'm going to stand behind you. And that's something that I'm grateful for, despite my mom's struggle with being abused. And we'll even get into some other things as far as some of the things that he's gone through with his dad. But that's something I'm really grateful that my mom was never one of those parents to make me feel like, let's say if I did want to major in theater, well, that was my minor, but some people's parents would be like, no, you can't major in that because that's not going to get you a job. So, but my mom was like, well, I can't tell you what to major in or what not to major in because at the end of the day, I have to spend four years. And if I go on to pursue a higher graduate, a postgraduate degree, then, or six years, however long that is for me to actually have to feel like I'm forced to do this major, whether it's studying law or becoming a doctor or whatever it is. And so I'm really grateful that my mom has always encouraged me to go after my dreams. So I really don't want to try to make it seem like I'm painting my picture and my mom in this bad. Like we're just telling our truth. And that's what this podcast is about is just owning our truth and living in it and growing from it, despite how hard it's been. So another uh, another thing that I wanted you to talk about was you're briefly going to like your dad's, you know, struggle with um, drug abuse and like, how has that impacted you? Um, and when was like the first time that you noticed that your dad had a, and I'll say this, we shared that we have different dads. When was the first time that you noticed that your dad had a, a, a substance use issue? To be told, I never knew it was really an issue, but the first time I knew he had a, a he was encountering with drugs was when I walked in a uh, garage when I was about in middle school. And I told my cousin, uh, her mother was there, da-da-da, da da as in, as in like telling her what, her what I call her mother doing. And she didn't believe me. But then eventually her mother checked into rehab. And then years on, when I, when I go back to my cousin and say, I told you, she's like, yeah, I know, I know. So as far as my first encounter with my father going through his drug abuse was maybe like about seventh grade. And then it didn't take me to high school to know that it was a, a real problem. Like, that's when I known, like, okay, this, like, this isn't like a one-time thing. Like, it, it kept happening. It was a, a repetitive action, if I should say, if that makes sense. So that was the first time you uh, discovered that when you, when it started to, like, sink in what was actually happening or what was going on, how did that make you feel? 
I mean, I was hurt because he was coming home like this, meaning when he was leaving out, this is what his time was being put into. And for my mom to just come home too and start and then start going off. And when they argue, she'll blatantly yell out, yell out loud, like you, 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 you're on drugs. Like you, like she'll just tell the whole house. So it really just took for them to argue for me to really know what my father was into. I would have just known by myself if I didn't see something because I saw it, but I didn't really understand it. But then when my mom really started telling me, that's when I knew like, okay, so my father is on drugs. That, so that's something that I can relate to, even though we have different dads. So I share the same dad with my brother, who's, um, he's a year and like a couple days younger than me. Um, I share the same dad with him and our dad also uses or has been addicted to drugs. So I can relate in that instance. One of the things that I often felt was embarrassment. I would never like want my father coming to any type of like programs or anything that I had going on because I would be embarrassed. Like my dad would be falling asleep and I'm like, this is embarrassing. Um, and how do you explain that to your friends? If you're in elementary school at eight years old, what do you say? Like my dad is sick. Well, yeah, technically he is sick. But at that time, I would say probably about like at eight or nine, I knew what my I knew my father was addicted to drugs, but I couldn't really explain that to like my peers. Um, so it, it is something that's very challenging. And then even after like my parents separated and then my his dad, um, I think one of the the hard things was actually seeing my mom, you know, now be in a relationship with someone else who also had a drug problem, but then also abused her. And I think the first time I noticed something about my mom being abused, I may have been like 11 or 12. And I honestly think that was like the first start of like when I started having suicidal thoughts, like around that time, if I can remember, just because it was so long ago. But that's kind of when I can like pinpoint when the thoughts started coming. So for you, how did that impact you? Like as being a, a young man watching your dad be verbally and physically abusive to your mom? How, how does that, how did that make you feel? Truthfully, I didn't think, I didn't never think that like I'd be in that situation because I had a, at the time, the first incident, I had my older sister referring to you inside the house and seeing that you couldn't take it, it was like, all right, my older sibling can't take that. And I'm just sitting there in the back watching all of this occur. And I'm too weak at the time to even in, intervene and do anything about it. So I couldn't really like, uh, it was kind of very, it was very hard to take in. But as like just seeing seeing everything, I just like, I mean, I was hurt. I was hurt just knowing because I remember one uh, incident that occurred and I had told him, I said, you said men don't hit females. And he got quiet. Do I hear the whole argument stopped? He just got quiet. And that, throughout that silence, I knew, okay, so he knows he's in a wrong, but he's still doing it, doing this anyway. And then when like another incident occurred, then another one, I'm like, okay, now like it's time to step up, Sabri. Like we got to do something about this or intervene because this can't keep going on, at least not in front of my face. It can't. That's how I really felt because I always wanted to do something, but at times I couldn't. Like I was just. So did you feel hopeless at some point about the situation? Yeah, I, I would definitely say that I felt hopeless, but I always thought that it would it, it'll be a change. I did 
I did think sometimes like he'll get it together or it'd just be a, a change out and outright, but it never it never came. So how how have you dealt with those emotions and those feelings? Like what has been your outlet? Things that are actually healthy for you to help you heal from those things that you've experienced? Truthfully, writing, writing about it, putting it in music. When I was younger, the first time, like, I got, like, I ain't gonna say I got abused, but I guess I got whooped. And I had just went in my room and I just started writing on a piece of paper, just everything, but it came out into rhymes, but it was very, like, it was just explicit about him. I guess I I couldn't be no older than 10 years old at the time, but I was just letting him have it in this writing. I was, it was just so powerful. I wouldn't let, I couldn't even let my mother see it, but it was just everything that just started fueling up inside of me that I just put in, put onto a piece of paper. So writing would be the way I would say as an outlet to cope with it, but it's really no way I could quite cope with it. Like it just, it, it, it helps. It's a, it's a little, it's a temporary relief until it's another incident occur. Yeah, writing is a good way. I mean, in just journaling, period, any therapist will tell you um, or mental health professional will tell you that journaling is one of one one of one of the best ways to cope. It's not the only way to cope, but it is really great to just get it out there. You don't have to have a certain schedule. You don't have to have a rhythm. You can just kind of write whatever's on your mind. You can also realize certain behaviors and thought patterns which is really great. So uh, journaling has been great for me. I usually prefer to do mine more in like article form, but just so I can get it out there. But it has definitely been one of my coping strategies. And would you say that you're open to therapy? Would you be open to trying therapy? Yes, I don't have a problem with it, but that's not where somebody would have to actually walk me there. I, that's not, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't drive it. Me personally, it just I don't know if that makes me weak, but I just never had the strength to like, okay, let's go talk to someone about your problems. I've just never been a person to be really opened up like that, but I don't have no problem with therapy at all. Do you prefer it to be a black male for you to go have someone that you see to make you feel a little a bit more comfortable? Mm, I mean, truthfully, no, it don't have to be. But can you elaborate on what you mean exactly by like, would you feel more comfortable if you went into a session and the, the therapist who was there was a black man that was actually the therapist, opposed to a lot of times therapy is actually changing and more people of color are becoming mental health clinicians, but there's still a lot of people who are white who are not saying that they can't be effective. That's what we're not saying. But it's just a different experience when you're black. It truly is. It's a completely, we live in two different Americas uh, when you talk about the color divide and race relations and all of that. So would you say you would feel more comfortable if you went into a session and someone who looked like you versus someone who didn't look like you? Truthfully, no. I'm the type of person where I, I'm not going to say I treat them both the same, but I would be comfortable to tell both races my stories, like whether you black or white looking like me or you don't. Mm -hmm. I still, like whatever I wanted to, like whatever they ask, I still be open to share. I don't have a problem with the color at all. As long so, as they are, as long as they can do their job. Yes. As long as we're here, like, as long as they're here for me and here, if they know, like, as long as they're here for me, basically, and they, they're uh, open to know what I'm talking about, which yeah, which shouldn't be a problem at all. If that's just... Yeah, I mean, 
That is something that's really challenging just because I know for me, it's interesting to hear your perspective. I was like really gung ho uh, about only having a, a black woman as a therapist, but I've had others. Like I've tried a white man before. I've tried to write a white woman before. And it was really, I didn't really make any progress. I didn't honestly start making progress until I started working with my current therapist who I've been seeing for three years now. So everyone's experience is different. I'm not saying that if a person is white, they can't help you. They, I think if they are a person that's not of color, they have to be culturally competent to understand that our experiences are different and to validate our experiences. And sometimes when you don't live in that world, it could be completely foreign to you. So for instance, like I remember on a previous podcast where I was talking about where uh, a psychiatrist said that a guy was like, he told, a black guy told in his session, well, when was the last time you smoked weed? And, or marijuana, they said. And he was like, oh, I haven't smoked it in a minute. And the clinician who was white was like, oh, if he said that he's, if he haven't smoked it in a minute, then, oh, he must have not have any concept of time. One minute was a minute ago. And the black psychiatrist had to come in and say, no, that's not what somebody means when they say, Someone who's black, when they say a minute, it means like a while. A minute could be mean two weeks. It could mean two months, but it does not mean an actual minute. And so just like that's something, a situation that's so small, but that can be a barrier and even possibly lead to someone being misdiagnosed if you don't even understand the lingo that the person is speaking. So it is important that if a person is not of color, that they are culturally competent and there are trainings and programs that they are coming up with now so that people who are not of color, that they'll be able to actually effectively work with clients who may be, who are of color. So one of the things I also wanted to ask you about is just how was it growing up with me? Like what type of person, what type of big sister was I? I mean, you were definitely, you was a motivating big sister. You was also inspiring. You was always on the move. Like you were into the pageants and these dances. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't into that, but I, I just seen how you, were, if you had something to do, you'll always find your way. You didn't, you didn't depend on nobody. If you needed to find your way there, you was getting there and you were just always out and about. I don't recall you really being home too much. And when I do recall you being home from what I remember, I remember you telling me, you defining the, the word essay for me for the first time. Like, I don't, I guess, like you weren't, Let's see, like, how do you feel like? Was I was I a happy kid? Was I sad? Was no, I? Well, you never, you know, you didn't never come off sad. You was more like, I don't know, but I mean, you weren't always too astounded either. So what was but, I? Was I bubbly? Was I talkative? Mm, I mean, to us, you were you. I mean, you would talk to us about what we are going through, like how was your day. But I don't really recall you being too talkative to us. I just like. I'm, I ain't gonna lie, I don't remember much, but I do remember when you was around, you did, you did care, but I also just remember you just, you always, always been on the go. Yeah, just taking care of your business, whatever you had. I've always been about my business. That is absolutely true. Pageants, Girl Scouts, drill team, school, AP classes, like, yeah, that's that's very true. Because that was my outlet. That was my ticket to me knowing that I needed to get to a point where I would be able to have a better life than some, you know, and get away from some of the things that I've been exposed to. But I was just interested in asking you to see what your perception of me, what, like how we grew up. 
that's why I wanted to ask. But how would how would you say that me opening up about like my suicide attempt and like my mental health challenges, how has that impacted you? Hearing you start being comfortable, like just comfortably just being open about what was going on in the house that I was currently living in. I was like, okay, I if she's opening up about it. It's time that I guess we could speak about it too. I mean, it was tough at first because you're talking from a distance and I'm in a, I'm still in a, the same environment that you're talking about. So it was like, it was kind of hard because you're basically still talking about us. You're still talking about us and like nothing was changing. So the fact that we were still there and you were away still talking about what's going on here, I was like, okay, Sabri, you're here. You should talk about it too. Don't just let her be the one talking about it, especially if you know you have a voice. And that's another thing about you. You did, you was all very open about expressing your voice. Like, don't just, don't seclude yourself and feel like that, that you need to be quiet for anyone. So, but yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that's how I really feel about it. So you feel like, do you feel like it's encouraged you to just not only be more vocal, but like to be open to therapy, to also like actually deal with your emotions as being like a young black man and not like leaving things to be bottled up? Yeah, but it more told me taught me that you could do more harm keeping everything inside, like keeping it all inside. And I learned I learned after like when I was younger, the passing of my dog. I just like saying as little as that when I kept that all inside, I noticed how it was a lot for me. But then when I started speaking about it, it came off a little bit more comfortable, but still hard. But you know, it's it was easier and more relieving after you speak about it. After I spoke about it, I mean that's when I felt like a lot of the relief and the pressure was a little bit relieved. Yeah, I think that's because in the Black community, we're often taught, like, what happens in this house stays in this house. And, you know, don't tell anybody your business. And we want to sweep things under the rug. And it's actually doing more damage than harm. Like, because for so long, I would keep things on the inside. And I see where that got me on the fourth floor of Southern Maryland Hospital, a.k.a. the psychiatric unit. So... That I realized that wasn't working anymore. So we hear all the time, if you want something different, if you want different results, then you have to do something different. Keeping things bottled up on the inside wasn't working for me. So I had to start talking about it. And I realized that me being open about it has been causing like a ripple effect in just my immediate family, where people now are coming to me and wanting to find out about therapy or coming to me and wanting me to help point them in a direction for certain resources, or just saying like, oh my gosh, I'm so proud of you for actually owning your truth and telling what your experience is. It's not for me to bad mouth or try to put, or try to put my mom in this negative light. That's never what it's been about. It's just always been about me telling my experience from my perspective and showing how me going through therapy and being on my life journey to actually healing from some of the things that I've experienced. That's all. That's always what this entire platform has been about, actually working toward healing. Because if we don't talk about it, we don't heal. Who said you can't heal what you don't reveal? Who said that? Y'all don't, you don't know? Someone said that. I don't know if it was Tupac or not. Someone's going to have to comment on Facebook or Instagram. But yeah, you can't, you can't, whatever you don't reveal, you can't heal. And that's what's so, that's what's wrong with a lot of us in the black community because we want to pray everything away. And it's like faith without works is dead. So you can pray all you want about something, but if 
you're not going to pray and go to the therapy session, then what, you know, what, you know, what good, what good is that? And so that's what, what I had to do. I pray to Jesus and I go to therapy every week too, you know? And so that has really worked for me. And so that's why I'm so passionate about using my platform and just really opening the mental health conversations to encourage black people or people of color, marginalized communities to simply go to therapy because it really does help. And sometimes you may need medication. Like that's okay too. I take medication too for my depression and anxiety. And I can say that since I've been on my medication, I haven't had any suicidal thoughts. So that goes to show you that it actually does work. So I think that's something that's really important because the more we start to talk about it and we start to deal with those demons and those things that we want to suppress or we're shameful and embarrassed about, because now it's all out there in the open. Like here I am talking about it on Facebook Live, Instagram Live, the podcast, the articles, all these speaking engagements. It's like there's no there's nothing to be ashamed about. It's just a part of my story. We all have a story. We all have things that we have gone through that we may not be proud of. Um, things that may have bruised us, but it's like, yeah, I may be bruised, but I'm not broken. So I'm really grateful that, you know, God has surrounded me around people who support me, who encourage me, but I'm also really grateful for my mental health treatment team. So that includes my therapist and my psychiatrist, the people who were there when I was in the psychiatric unit, the people who was there in the partial hospitalization program. I'm really grateful because of me taking advantage of mental health treatment, I'm further along on the other side. Do I still have my struggles? Yes, but they're not compared to what they were before I st- before I started treatment. So one of the things that I also wanted to ask you about, oh, excuse me, I wanted to ask you about was what does self-care mean to you as a, as a Black man? I would say self-care to me means basically definitely taking care of yourself and not worrying about what anybody thinks about how you're taking care of yourself or or who you're taking care of but you have to but like us like you got to you have to put yourself first before you put anyone anyone else first and it is people out there who do like they they care about themselves but they definitely are too genuine and put other people before themselves which put them in predicaments where they feel uh I don't know really how to say this, but it makes them feel lost or or when it comes times for it, they feel like nobody is treating them the same way. And, I've, and like in my head, I'd be like, you have to take care of yourself before you start putting right. your time into anyone else. That's how I really. Yeah, do. that's something that I would. Yeah, I can agree. That's something that I used to do. I used to say that I was so busy trying to save the world that I couldn't even save myself. And that's something I always talk to my mom about. Like, mommy, you can't you can't help anybody until you help yourself. I can't be of any service as much as I want to help my mom and be this amazing big sister to my brother and my brothers and my sister. Um, I can't do that unless I'm taking care of myself. So that's something that I had to learn, you know, setting boundaries and saying no and saying I can't do it. I'm not saying no, I don't want to do it because I don't love the person or because I don't want to help them but because I don't have the mental bandwidth or the emotional capacity to even do it. And by constantly putting more on my plate, it's being a detriment to my mental and emotional health. So that's why I'm like, I can't do that. And that's something that I've learned in therapy is like setting boundaries. And sometimes people, you know, you get a little pushback because people are so used to you. Hey, hey, Anita, (laughs) people are so used to you doing things a certain way. 
But let me tell you, when you start going to therapy and you get you a really good therapist, a really good therapist, therapy will have you setting boundaries and being unapologetic about it. Like, I'm sorry if me saying no or saying that I can't do something makes someone feel some type of way. It's not a personal jab at them. But and now that's something I also understand when the tables are turned, there are some instances where I need people to be there for me and they can't be there because they don't have the emotional bandwidth. And so that's when I have to move on and figure out, well, who are my core people and how can I actually get my needs met? And that's something I'll actually do a podcast episode on too, like how to get your needs met in your support system. But it, it is something that's really important for us to to talk about just because a lot of people don't realize how not going to therapy and also like not setting those boundaries, how bad it can be for your mental health. And we're almost about to wrap up, but yes, I agree as far as as far as like self-care. It means definitely taking care of yourself, whatever that is. So that can be writing, that can be journaling, that can be exercise, that can be going to therapy. Um, anything that is a healthy coping skill or coping strategy. So getting high or alcohol, you're not going to hear me promote that because those can be seen. I know marijuana is a one that's the in-between, but I do believe that that could help some people given their situations, but you're not going to hear me promote that just because I do believe that people can also be addicted to just substances in general. People could be addicted to pills. And so if you have, if a person is relying on, for instance, let's say marijuana, and they're not going to therapy, it's like you're treating the symptoms, but you're not dealing with what's underneath the surface. So why do you feel like every time you're triggered or every time you get angry or sad or depressed, you have to go smoke marijuana? Therapy helps you go beneath the surface to figure out what is triggering me and what do I need to do to have a healthy coping strategy to feel like I don't always have to smoke every time I'm being triggered. So they're still healthy and from exercising, you can get, um, you know, healthy endorphins and hormones going to help you with, the, you know, the feel good chemicals. So there are natural ways to actually do that. And so that's why I'm always advocating for therapy to help people go beneath the surface. And therapy is very hard. It's very uncomfortable. It causes you to hold up a mirror to yourself and to be really naked about what your truths are. And while it hasn't been easy for me, therapy is one of the best things that I could have done for myself because now I'm simply just being myself and I don't have to hide. Like I'm not hiding no more. I don't care what it is that people think about me, about the decisions that I make or about my suicide attempt or just whatever it is. Like I have to learn to be comfortable in my own skin without allowing the judgments and the fears and the projections of other people to make me feel like I'm less than or I'm not worthy. And that's something that I can say I attribute to therapy. So before we wrap up, I want to ask you, my brother wrote this song that I was promoting and it's called Spontaneous Thoughts. And he wrote it about trauma, our experiences and, and me surviving suicide. I want to ask you, which we'll actually have the song played at the end of the episode, but what led you to write that song? Truthfully, the, uh, what led me to really write the song, and well, it just, it was, at first it was just, I was just listening to a beat, and then that was the first thing that popped up in my head when I had started just, just spitting the first bar, and when I spit that first bar, and just, and I, I was downstairs, and I, but I said it in a way like I really meant it, 
And when that first two lines came off, I'm like, oh, snap. Like, it blew my head off because then I got chills. Like, if somebody else hear this, it could be very, very, very powerful. And it was very, it, it was powerful when I'm the one who said it. So then, but then I kept going, kept going. So then it started, well, then what kept me going was then hearing my sister start talking about uh, her, her personal experiences. And I'm talking about her. So then I'm like, okay, we could go into a little bit more depth about what we've been through and what, and what our whole family been through. So then that's when I kept going with the verses. And, and yeah, just basically my pain, your pain, and our struggles really is what what motivated me to keep writing that song and get through with it, go through with it rather. So how how does that how did that make you feel when you actually had the finished song and thinking like, wow, I actually wrote this song and looking at the lyrics to see how powerful they are. When you first saw this and you like had the beat and you was like listening back to it just like, wow, what was that initial like first thought or feeling that you had? The first person who hears is gonna cry, and I I was thinking about you when I had uh I actually finished it. I'm like when she hear this, I feel like it's gonna put her in tears. It did. <laughs> and then I, I I I sampled the song first with my mother, with mommy, and then she, she she's driving and she said, "Oh my God, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. I'm gonna start crying." Then I, so she couldn't even finish the first uh the first bar of the hook. So then I knew like okay, this is very very touching. And then that's when I knew, okay, like the next step, I had to start pushing the song. And eventually I dropped the music video for it. And then now here I am still trying to market it because it's not quite out there yet. It's only, as I say, it's just a, it's a, it's a local song that everybody's getting a little bit. Yes, about. yes. We're going we gonna to get it out there. So y'all make sure y'all share my brother's song with the Shade Room and Blavity and all those awesome platforms because the song does have a powerful message. And he'll actually be performing the song at the show I'm producing on October 21st uh, at the This Is My Brave show at the Gunson One Theater in Arlington, Virginia. So I'm super excited about that. How does it feel to be a part of a show that I initially was participating in earlier this year, but now I'm producing it and you're sharing your story? How does that feel? Feel good because I was just in the audience listening to like to all these stories and I mean, I'm from New Jersey. I mean, we have struggles, but then when you start hearing people talk about their struggles and there's nothing like what we're going through, they're talking about on the verge of basically hanging in the closet. And it's just like, it's crazy because I actually had a childhood friend who died from suicide. So the fact that people's on the verge of this, but it was other people out there who caught them right before they actually went through with it. It's very, very like, it's crazy because some people did not have that person to no no before they hopped off the bridge, you know. So the fact that uh, people actually caught a hand before they was trying to go through it is crazy. So I, I'm definitely I'm proud to be a part of it because now I get to show share my story with others who could be possibly going through what I'm going through. So it's actually a good feeling because I mean October 21st we're gonna be touching lives. Yes, we are. I'm so excited, y'all. I love my brother. He's not my baby anymore because he's 18. Well, he'll always be my baby. But any, you know, last words we're gonna add. One of the things I want you to do before we wrap up is give some encouraging words to young black men and boys to help them actually want to be more vulnerable and take control over their mental health and actually saying like, it's okay to cry. It's okay to talk about your emotions. It's okay to go to therapy. What words of encouragement would you give to, hey, our younger brothers or even 
you know, just younger, younger uh, men. It would definitely be don't let don't let anyone tell you what you can or can't do because I'm still in a situation where uh, my own coach is isn't proud of me that I'm pursuing rapping really exactly. He uh, so I mean I want to you got to make yourself happy before you make anybody else happy. You'll be struggling if you're just trying to live your life in someone else's shoes and you got to just be with the shoes the shoes that you have. You got to wear them and go out and rock with them and ball out with them however you ball out because we all ball out different we all have our own passions and our own goals that we are trying to achieve out here just people are gonna be like okay i don't like that you do that like so it's about you at the end of the day like you're you're your own person you're your own man you have to find your way in this world and people ways in this world is definitely different but you just have to go through whatever you feel is right yeah i agree your heart is just follow your heart yeah, I, I agree. It does sound cliche, but I mean, it, it is true as far as like following your heart and doing those things that make you happy. I can honestly say that like doing the podcast and all the things that I've been doing, it has opened so many doors for me, but also it's starting to like not just heal me, but heal my family. Would you say that like by me doing the things that I have been doing is like slowly starting to get the ball rolling for like mommy to start healing and like you to start healing? Yeah. But I mean, it's gonna it's gonna take that person. I know we talk about our family, but it's individuals. People fail to realize a family is a one, but it's individuals that make the family. You can't have one like what they what's the quote? Uh, you're as strong as your weakest link. So like if you have that uh if you have that individual in your family that that's not even where you, where you're at with your mindset, it's it's gonna be it's gonna it's gonna be tough. But you just have to make sure everybody's on the same page. Everybody is uh as determined in there what's the what's the, what am i trying to exactly say that everybody is is healthy and uh is as determined to achieve the the goal that you that you're trying to uh achieve basically try to be the strongest yeah and i think the strongest family you can be yeah there we go yeah i mean that i truly believe that's when families start to heal when we we start to work together but also work individually yeah, like that's what i'm basically trying yeah, to say so I'm that, glad you, yeah, yeah so yes i have to do my work individually and work in therapy my brother has to do his work individually my mom my other siblings like we all have to do our work and then collectively we come together and we heal together so i think that's why it's like i'm getting emotional and i'm not about to cry on this instagram live or facebook live but it does start to just be a ripple effect when you start to open up because I would just say to anybody who's listening on any of the lives um, and listening on the podcast is that when you start being the trailblazer um, or the one to kind of take initiative to do something different in your family, you could really change the trajectory of your family. Like we hear generational curses, we hear or uh, all the time. Where, for instance, there's someone who was molested in the family and then someone just prayed and and swept it under the rug and never actually talked about it. But then when that one person start coming out and start talking about that molestation, it really starts to break down those generational curses. And so that's something that I can say that from personal experience, I have not, you know, had that experience as far as being molested. But the experience in the sense that, like, my mom has always encouraged me and saying, like, Takiya. I want something better for you. You know, I don't want you to be a teenage mom like me. I want you to go to college and pursue your dreams and live life to the best of your ability, you know, because that's something that it it was generational. And so my mom was like, you know, it stops with you. So, so my mom opened it up and saying, 
what this is and saying like, this is what it has been, but I wanted to change with you by her just simply opening up that helped break down a gener generational curse when you think of teen teenage pregnancy. So I think it is important that we do start to talk about whatever those experiences are in our families that we are not proud of and just even start in a simple session with going to therapy on your own or if you have strained relationships with your children to start going um, to therapy with your children. So I hope that by my brother and I coming on the podcast and just, you know, Facebook and Instagram live that is gave another perspective. Like people just often see me, but they don't often see the people who surround me and the people who actually build me up. And so I just thought it would be really cool to have my brother come on here. So I hope that you all just enjoy um, listening and that y'all also be sure to share his song. Follow him on Instagram with your IG. It's at Breeze with threes for the first E and the last E. And that's an underscore. So that's B-R-3-E-Z-3 underscore. <laughs> these, I can't even say these millennials. He's not a millennial. What's the generation after millennials? I don't know. But yeah, so, but yeah, so thank you all for tuning in. That wraps up another episode of the Fireflies Unite podcast. And I will talk to y'all later. This is Sabri Murray, aka Crease, presenting to you spontaneous thoughts dedicated to my big sister and anyone that was going through the struggle, which was written in a very low point of my life and a very dark time. I hope you enjoy it.
because I embrace your pain, but hate the pain that you was dealt. I got this question in my head and I just want to know, what was your motivation when you chose you had to go? I got the type of smile that hide the pain I shouldn't show. I can't believe my mom and sister tried to overdose. I'm in my room, I locked the door, I'm in here suffering. I wrote this song and cried 10 times in case you wondering. I love the pain, but yet I think I had to buffer it. That's just another way to say I had enough of it. I almost lost my sister twice, so you gon' feel my wrath. Cause if you needed help, then all you had to do was ask. You said you going through it, sorry that you heard me laugh. I thought that you was playing, now I know you didn't gas. I hope that you obtain tools and resources from the Fireflies Unite podcast to help you manage your mental health. But please do not use it as a substitute for a relationship with a licensed therapist or psychiatrist. Let's continue the conversation by following me on Fireflies Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.